and that was the case across the country for a, a lot of favorites and and some underdogs too, where they were out in front, uh, big leads for Case Western Reserve, for Aurora, for uh, Western New England teams that we didn't necessarily expect to win on Saturday, and in a lot of cases they didn't. He's rolling left, fires towards the end zone for Canuck. Touchdown, Eric Canuck. Touchdown, wow. 34 yards. Okay, D3 football, we're giving you a game here. Handoff is to Mendoza, breaks a tackle. The Chapman Panthers win. Mendoza all night long has been doing this for the Panthers. His third touchdown of the game. And it's the one that will send them to the second round of the playoffs. Under pressure, and now he falls! And he's sacked, and the ball's loose! And the ball's loose! And it's in the end zone! Touchdown, Aggies! Vincent DeLeo! The quarterback loses the ball, and DeLeo into the end zone! Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Highlights from Central, highlights from Chapman, so much excitement, people are talking all over each other. Highlights from the Delaware Valley win, just three of the uh, key and exciting games on Saturday in the first round of the NCAA playoffs. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the twice-weekly show about the largest division of college football, the largest bracket of college football playoffs, and we welcome you to podcast number 262, the one with the two overtime games podcast for November 25th, 2019. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. I co-host the podcast, and I did not allow 83 points or need three overtimes to advance on Saturday. Oh, I did need most of that. I advanced finally after, let's see, oh, four and a half hours on the Bracket Blitz show uh, with Frank Rossi, and then another two hours or so watching the rest of that Chapman-Linfield game, the one that ended in the three overtimes with uh, Chapman getting the first playoff win ever in the football program's history. Great weekend. We'll hand out our game balls here in this podcast. We'll break it all down bracket by bracket coming up in just a little moment. But before we do that, uh, I'd like to remind you that this edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It. That's at gottahaveitfanfoams.com. You know, these are the uh, 3D fan, uh, foam, you know, representations of your team's mascot or your team's logo you can hang on the wall you can bring to the tailgate you can use as props during a live studio show for four and a half hours on saturday lots of things that you can do with these you know we encourage more d3 schools to hop on the bandwagon absolutely as we mentioned in the in the friday pod nobody with a a active uh fan foam promotion had a losing record this season mary harden baylor has got one Whitewater's got one. Mount Union's got one. Uh, I think there's some string of uh, connection between all those schools. And, and, you know, we joke, but but in all honesty, it's a good product. It's something that's uh, that's worth your time and your effort. And, uh, of course, as those folks who, who support D3 and its programs, uh, you know, we want to give back and support to them. Yeah, even if your logo doesn't have purple in it, I think it's going to look pretty good on these uh, 3D logo fan foams. They like uh, create them in separate layers, and you get this kind of you know the really cool 3D effect that really makes your 
you know, logo pop. So look for these officially licensed fan foams at gottahaveitfanfoams.com. Or if you are someone who leads the Alumni Association or the marketing or something like that, if you're a coach who's looking for you know some way to engage with your fans or with your alumni, go to gottahaveitfanfoams.com and uh, follow the links to get into their system and get things started. Keith, round one usually uh, is a, a place for a lot of blowouts, and there certainly were some, but uh, I still feel like uh, Saturday's first round of games was uh, just a fantastic afternoon. Pat, this might go down as the most memorable round one of the 32-team era. For all the angst about who did not squeeze into the field, Saturday's 16 playoff games delivered, although seven of the deliveries were Amazon Prime, and the other nine were like when you get a newspaper on your doorstep, but it rained that day and the water leaks through the orange bag. Only the olds who got newspapers offline will even get that joke, but I digress. Seven playoff games were decided by eight points or fewer. The rest were decided by between 25 and 83 points. This was the opening round that featured the worst playoff performance in Division Three history and some of the best in playoff history, with Chapman scoring 68 and walking off Linfield in the third overtime. And that might not have even been the best overtime of the day. And Central got another two-point conversion attempt to go its way, storming back from 24 down to take the lead in overtime against Oshkosh, only to watch the Titans score and line up for the game-winning two-point attempt. Elsewhere, Don Beebe's crew was nearly the toast of D3 before letting a nine-point lead midway through the fourth quarter at St. John's slip away. Case Western Reserve, which two years ago stunned Illinois Wesleyan in round one, had 10-0 Union on the ropes for much of the day. Yeah. Western New England led but couldn't finish off Brockport, while Huntington, a 7-3 team coming in, knocked off Berry. Sure, there were Mountain Union, Mary Harden, Baylor, Whitewater, Wheaton, North Central, Muhlenberg, Wesley, and Wartburg cakewalks, but ultimately, Saturday gave us a round one to remember, perhaps nowhere better than in Southern California, where some coaches wore shorts and the Panthers and Wildcats had the national stage to themselves since the other 15 games kicked off within within an hour of one another. Yeah, let us, uh, the day ended with that game, but let us start with that game here on this podcast, a game that... You know, you could uh, spend just a, basically an entire amount of time talking about the last two minutes of regulation and all of the overtimes, but very much a, a back and forth game. Well, not back and forth as much as uh, Chapman jumped out to a 21 7 lead, and then uh, Linfield finally came back and took the lead early on in the third quarter as Artie Johnson ripped off his second touchdown run of the day, a 47 yarder. Linfield goes up 34 to 28. Uh, and you know, if you're uh, you know someone who's watched Linfield in those kind of positions in the past, or you know, if you're someone who's watched a uh, Skyac team play in the playoffs in the past in those kind of situations, you might think this is an opportunity for Linfield to start running away with it, right? A chance that uh, you know uh, that uh, Chapman might fold, but that is not at all what happened. Uh, nine play, seventy-seven yard drive, Johnston McGinty with a twenty-three yard run. Uh, and uh, Dylan Keefe, Dylan Keefe, we'll talk more about him later, 10-yard touchdown run. Uh, and then we go to, uh, let's see, let's get to those final couple of minutes, right? It's a 68-yard drive by Chapman, which takes just two and a half minutes uh, after Linfield scored to tie it up uh, at 41 apiece with just under four minutes left in the game. Chapman comes down and drives, uh, and they score too early. We knew it at the time. We tweeted it at the time. But, uh, Chapman went up 48-41, and then Linfield came back, scored with uh, 4.9 seconds in regulation and then the overtimes happened and I'm, I've been talking for a while you want to talk about overtime I know you watched sure. some of the overtime yeah well I, I was on the highway and uh on my way back from Bridgewater and and I just was like this is stupid 
I'm just going to be trying to look at my phone the whole time, and I, I don't want to run into a truck here yeah, on 66. That. So just uh, just pulled off, found the nearest Sheets, and and people in the uh, in the Mid Atlantic will know a Sheets when they hear it. Uh, found the nearest Sheets, pulled in there, and watched. Uh, strangely enough, uh, watched three overtimes in the um, in the parking lot there. Adam Turr said he left the house at the end of regulation to to go somewhere. Uh, I think he had a family event or something like that. Got to the place and realized overtimes were still going. And uh, that's a, the, the, the type of uh, overtime it was. But there was a point in overtime where, where the teams were so back and forth that they scored on three consecutive plays. And uh, the, the Chapman scores, because they got the ball second in the first overtime and, uh, and I believe scored on a, uh, a desperation, not a desperation, but a fourth down situation, and then started the second overtime with the ball and were in the end zone. I thought I was watching a replay. Yeah, It happened so quickly that, uh, that they went from basically on their last legs um, season over to up a score in overtime. Yeah, and that second one, the one that started the second overtime, was uh, Dylan Keefe, who's a, a stud linebacker for uh, Chapman. He came on, he got a handoff, and then he uh, turned and uh, threw the ball to Spencer Corona upfield. Touchdown in the end zone. Uh, Keegan Weiss answers with a touchdown from Wyatt Smith on the on the ensuing drive. Another 25-yarder, just kind of bang, 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 right? Those three consecutive plays. And then in the third overtime, Chapman actually gets a stop. There's like a third down play at the nine where they where they get the stop Linfield comes on they kick a field goal to go up 65 62 and then Tanner Mendoza on uh two plays on that drive uh the second one is the one that you heard in our open the 13 yard touchdown run where this guy stiff arms two defenders on his way to the end zone and uh in and then it's a it's a 68 to 65 win uh obviously a big win in terms of all sorts of things not just for the bracket but also for chapman and uh here is you know chapman as a program here's uh johnston mcintyre tanner mendoza and dylan keefe talking about winning the first playoff game in program history it's awesome you know we see all those alumni up in the uh stands going crazy for us giving us huge hugs They're, they might be more excited than we are uh after that win so uh it means a lot for us and for them and uh that's huge I mean, yeah, we're on top of the world right now. We set goals at the beginning of the season. Um, hosting a playoff game was one of them. And now we just won one. And it's the first time in history, first time going undefeated. I mean, we are just loving this season, loving each other. And it's honestly just been phenomenal being out here. I think it really set in for me when I saw all those alumni up in the stands and how excited they were um, when we won that game. Because... I didn't necessarily know a lot of the history behind it. I knew that we talked about it, um, but just to see the importance it was to the alumni really hit home for me and meant a lot. Pat, it wasn't that long ago where Chapman was the extra program around Southern California that wasn't really in the Skyac, but they played all the Skyac schools, and uh, now it is the last program standing on the West Coast with Redlands also going down on Saturday. So uh, a huge moment for them. And now they're going to get a visit from St. John's, one of the great programs in, in D3 history. And uh, this season just kind of keeps rolling for them. And it, it's been uh, it's been kind of a whirlwind in some ways, you know, but they've they've earned every part of it. And the thing I, I find interesting, of course, especially when you're getting a St. John's visit from a, a St. John's team that just squeaked by in its own game on Saturday, is that this this quadrant of the bracket was looking like maybe it was going to be uh, 
four teams or, or three and a half with uh, with Stag Bowl pedigree that it was going to be St. John's, Linfield, UW Oshkosh, and Wheaton in, uh, in round two. And Wheaton has never been to a Stag Bowl, but certainly uh, had had teams, you know, one of, probably one of the 10 most important programs in D3 over the past 20 years. Um, and now you get Central and Chapman winning in overtime. And those games are still – great games. Those were both home teams on Saturday. So it wasn't like those wins were completely and, and totally unexpected. But I, I think uh, instead of having the name recognition, you get these uh, these cool new programs that we're going to learn a little bit more about uh, this week. And, I, I, you know, they're not new programs, but they are ones that early in the season, we didn't expect this level of success. And there's always going to be a few of these stories across the country. And now you have you have your Huntington and you have uh, Pretty much, I mean Union, and then and then Central and Chapman. I think are the other two teams that are alive, where uh, you know we didn't expect them to get quite this far, and uh, it's a pretty impressive moment for for Chapman in particular. Game ball, game ball, game ball. It's time for game balls, and my game ball game is going to go to Chapman linebacker Dylan Keefe. Linebacker, running back, quarterback, you name it. That's what Keefe did for the Panthers on Saturday. Keefe opened the game with a scoop and score, a 21-yard uh, fumble return to give the Panthers a 7-0 lead less than three minutes into the game. He got some carries, and that included a 10-yard touchdown run to tie the game late in the third quarter. And then in the second overtime, he took that handoff through downfield. Spencer Corona hauled it in for a 25-yard touchdown. To go with all of that, he also blocked an extra point. He had 10 tackles, and he had a sack, and here's Dylan Keefe to talk about his game on Saturday. We never really wanted to have to do it. It was always kind of a backup thing. Um, and then we had the three running backs we had this season. We had Woods, Marcos, and him, and it was just never really going to happen. They're amazing. They can do it themselves, and even he does it alone. Um, but it was, it, was, it was definitely nice to get in, having not done all that practicing for it, uh, just because it does take a – way a little bit from defense practice but um it, it was it was it was definitely exciting it was I'm lucky to have gotten to do that I don't think any guy in college football has scored that many ways in a single game have they Pat there were 15 other games on Saturday and so many game ball worthy performances to choose from and even if we wipe the blowouts off the slate and give extra weight to the close games, it doesn't narrow the field of available game ball recipients all that much down at Bridgewater for example Jared Dunham had 246 kick return yards, a stat I'd be highlighting if the Eagles had managed to win. Ultimately, I have to go with somebody who did manage a win to the tune of 30 for 42, 481 yards, four touchdown passes, no interceptions. That's Jackson Erdman, the reigning Gallardi Trophy winner, with his team down nine in just a half a quarter to save one of the story Division Three programs from one of the most monumental first-round upsets in years. Calmly led 10 and seven play touchdown drives that Kai Barber finished off with runs. Twice Aurora had two touchdown leads, and each time Erdman and the Johnny's offense brought the team back. Wide receivers Robbie Alston, TJ Hodge, and Matt Moore each did their parts, but in the end, it was Erdman's game ball worthy work that made the difference. Did we expect the Johnnies to be so happy to squeak by the NAC champion? Nah. But that's one that everyone in Clemens Stadium on Saturday will remember for a long time. Yeah, imagine how close we were to giving Gavin Zimbelman a game ball. A tremendous uh, performance by both of those guys. And uh, we're going to go kind of now bracket by bracket 
through the uh, or quadrant by quadrant through the rest of the bracket in the top left. Uh, of course, the teams that advanced Mary Harden, Baylor, Huntington, Whitewater and Wartburg, uh, Mary Harden, Baylor over Redlands in a game in which it kind of looks like a standard Mary Harden, Baylor Redlands game, except, uh, you know, the the final score, 43, 14 in uh, large part, I think, helped by the fact that uh, Nathan Martinez, the uh, starting quarterback for Redlands, went out in the first half, did not come back. But actually, his uh, replacement, Eric Kump, seemed to have better better success. 9-19 passing for 175 yards, a touchdown. He was picked off twice. Jace Hammock looking good uh, with uh, three touchdown passes. And, uh, you know, again, just kind of a, a fairly typical meeting of these two teams who had met three previous times in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah. And, and when you look at the, the Mary Harden Baylor stats, you know, nothing jumps off the page except for this really key number from Jace Hammock, no interceptions. And uh, he got 25 of the, the passing attempts, all the key snaps, Tommy Bowden, Luke Poorman did play, but clearly uh, Mary Harden Baylor has settled on Hammock as their best bet to get them back to where Hammock got them to last season, which was a the national championship stage in Shenandoah. Mary Harden Baylor hoping not leave the state again to win it all, and and I don't think there was anything on Saturday when you add in those uh, those defensive turnovers. Uh, I don't think there was anything on Saturday that that stood out that would make you think they don't have a chance to get back. Murray Harden Baylor will face Huntington. Huntington defeated Barry on Saturday by the score of 27 to 24. Uh, Huntington may be a bit of a surprise because they came into the game at seven and three. They were the uh, eighth seed in this bracket, but of course, Barry the six itself. Uh, even when Barry came back, took the lead with uh, 4:35 to go on a Gavin Gray touchdown pass. Huntington comes right back. Michael Lambert. Hits Garrett Headley on a wheel route for 56 yards and a score, and they go back up 27-24 with 3:31 to go. And then Barry gets the ball back. They start their uh, they start their drive. They get into Huntington territory, and uh, Gray is picked off by Dylan Powell. And here's Dylan Powell to talk about that. Uh, well, the uh, the play call that we had, we had the the running back flared out, and I'm supposed to take him and. Whenever he flared, and I, I went to go out there towards him, and I seen the the quarterback flipped his shoulders or whatever. And whenever I seen him long arm, I broke. And then I seen the ball came, and I tipped it around. Like <laughs> I don't know why I did it so many times, but I decided I'd catch it and run it for a little while. How disappointed are you? You didn't take it all the way. I'm pretty disappointed. My teammates, <laughs> my teammates have already let me know how slow I am. So. <laughs> yeah, Powell was caught on the six yard line but uh then uh, and of course there was an illegal block that brought it back but it didn't matter huntington was able to kneel it out and come away with the 27 to 24 win yeah and and i'm sure dylan powell will take slow and timely over uh over fast any day when you get to advance play another week with your team you know when you when you take a look at the the final numbers from this game Huntington didn't really do it's kind of the it's kind of the quintessential close game because Huntington didn't really do any of the things you would say they had to do to uh to win this game. They didn't shut Mason Kinsey down. He had 9 for 106 and a touchdown and he's the star receiver for Barry. They didn't necessarily stop the run. Isaiah Dawson 27 carries for 110, so we're running at, at 4 yards a clip. Uh the turnovers, the penalties, the um sacks, all that stuff pretty even in the two games and it, and it really in in between the two teams. Uh, and on Saturday, and it pretty much does come down to a key play like that late in the game by Dylan Powell. You know, Huntington uh, led in this one and was trying to hang on, and there were numerous teams 
around the country who were the underdog, who were the road team that that did get out in front early and uh, weren't able to hang on. And there was actually one of the the underdogs that was the home team uh, that that wasn't able to hang on either. But I think for Huntington, you know, they'll take it. A trip to Mary Harden Baylor awaits, and 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 that's fine. You get to play two playoff weeks and, and take your best shot at the big dog. What else can you ask for? The other part of this bracket uh, features Whitewater advancing past Monmouth by the score of 35 to 10. This game notable uh, because Max Mailer got the start at quarterback for Whitewater after uh, Zach Olis, we talked about it on the previous podcast, threw interceptions on four consecutive possessions. Mailer was 16 to 26 passing for 183 yards and four scores. It was Jared Ware, 20 for 110 on the ground. Alex Pete, 16 for 80. And of course, uh, you know, the defense holding Monmouth to 172 yards of total offense. Yeah, and, and that's sort of the difference sometimes between these really, really powerful programs and uh, and the ones who are good programs within their conference is that line play. You saw it really a few times on Saturday across the country where, where certain teams just could not run on uh, on the other teams. You know, Monmouth couldn't move the ball. Uh, Western New England couldn't really run on Brockport, and we've talked on the pod before about Brockport's run defense. Uh, SUNY Maritime couldn't couldn't run on Salisbury. So even though we're still over here in this upper upper left hand bracket, there are some themes that that were true across the country. And you know, for Whitewater to shut down the run, to run the ball well, not all that exciting. The 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 quarterback thing too. Have you ever seen a playoff with two of your major contenders switching to a young quarterback yeah. uh, at the start of the playoffs, like the way Whitewater and Wesley did on Saturday? gives us extra storylines to think about. No, that's definitely true. Other game in this top left bracket uh, features uh, Wartburg defeating Hope by the score of 41 to 3. Hope on its first possession, they drive, they go 61 yards in eight plays, but they uh, have a false start on third and goal from the six. They're knocked back to the 11-yard line. They end up having to settle for a field goal at that point. And I remember saying, on the bracket blitz that uh, you cannot win this game by uh, you know settling for three in situations like that. It turned out that those were the last points that Hope would end up with on that day. It was funny because that was one of the things that, that Mike Clark said to me after the game is that you know every time you trade three for seven, it's a bad deal for you every single time. And uh, certainly it was for, for Bridgewater and it was for Hope in that situation, but I don't think that hope, uh, you know, clearly, when you look at the forty-one-three score, you know, hope I don't think would have uh, would have done a whole lot more damage had they scored early in that one. Noah Dodd, great game, uh, only had to throw the ball eighteen times, eleven completions, hundred and eighty-five yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions, a big number. And you're starting to see a theme as we talk about these quarterbacks across the bracket. The teams that played well did not turn the ball over. The teams that that turned it over got themselves into a little bit of trouble, maybe had to win shootouts or or ended up losing. So uh, for Wartburg, I think they got a nice first-round matchup. And, and as much as we enjoyed talking to uh, to Hope's Peter Sturzma uh, on the Friday podcast, and if you're a Hope fan, you go back and uh, listen to that if you haven't heard it already. Um, you, you get teams like Hope who get in this in their first playoff game and whether they catch a bad matchup, don't play that well, uh, didn't have the right game plan, things just get away from them, whatever it is, you know, to, to play at home and lose 41-3 in, in your playoff debut, certainly deflating and demoralizing. And then you have the other side of the, the coin where you have these, uh, you know, the Auroras and the Chapmans and the other the programs who had a uh, Huntington who had uh, a, a day to remember. 
the uh, Wartburg defense did a great job of bottling up Mason Oppel. Uh, he threw for 102 yards on 18 to 27 passing, and he had just 19 yards on the ground in 16 carries. Moving on to the bottom left bracket. This is the bracket that, uh, you know, kept us around a little extra total of four overtimes in this bracket, plus a, uh, a four point game besides. But we'll start with the uh, the first one is a is a blowout. The uh, top seed Wheaton all over Martin Luther in that uh, one by the final score of 51 to seven. Uh, the impressive thing maybe is that uh, Martin Luther got on the board with a, a Joshua Kren 44-yard run. We mentioned that's a guy with some skills, uh, a guy who started his career as a Division II defensive back. But uh, four touchdown passes for Luke Anthony, TJ Williams with a, a touchdown run on the ground. Yeah, and and you know the the defense was was really great for Wheaton on on Saturday. Three of sixteen Martin Luther was on third downs, and they tried. Well, three times on fourth down and got one of those two. So you're looking at 19 attempts, four conversions. Wheaton did a great job getting off the field, not letting the the young upstart team get anything to uh, to believe in. And then, of course, just overwhelming offensively, almost six yards per play. And and you know, if you're moving at that clip, it's a pretty good day. Central's headline on its website for Saturday's game is uh, this simply it period was period amazing period and we talked uh, a couple weeks ago about the uh, the big comeback that Central gave up to Wartburg Wartburg was down big at the half they rallied to send it to overtime this is the game where uh, UW Oshkosh had Central beat at the half anyway 31 to 7 a 35 yard fumble recovery and return at the buzzer in the first half, sent uh, Oshkosh to the locker room with a 24-point lead, and then Central gets back into this game. Uh, they start with a field goal. Blaine Hawkins runs one in at the end of a 12-play drive. Uh, they hit Eric Kanak for consecutive, well, not consecutive, but two fourth-quarter touchdowns, the last of them, with 15 seconds to go in regulation. And, Keith, we were talking about this on the Blitz, and we were talking about it in the Slack chat, but uh, this sounded like a very familiar refrain to anybody who remembers Oshkosh going to the national semifinals. Uh, and th- there were definitely tweets to that effect on, on Saturday. Now, the last two uh, Oshkosh eliminations have been games where they were way out in front. The, uh, the, the Mount Union one, of course, stings probably even more than this one because Oshkosh wasn't necessarily expected to be a playoff team this season, uh, earned their way in certainly on uh, with the week 11 win at Whitewater and, and had higher hopes than I think a one and done. But, you, you, you know, you can get that lead. And even though the way Central chipped away at it was pretty slow with those two 12-play drives in the third quarter, uh, Oshkosh still has a nice lead going into the fourth. There is some point when you're the team protecting the lead where, where I don't want to say you, you fold up the tents or you start playing tight, uh, but you really do, and you see coaches do, actively call games like this now to try to stay aggressive because uh when that ball gets rolling downhill sometimes you're the team ahead and you may even have like a two score lead but you feel like you're losing and you, and you tighten up and you know if you if you can't get a if you have a three and out all of a sudden you know a team just scored on you you give the ball right back to them and, and they come down the field again and all of a sudden what what was a blowout turns into a close one the thing that happened here though is even though central does all that Ball rolling uh, just happened to them a couple weeks ago uh, against Wartburg. So we've we've talked about this type of scenario recently. Central is the team now that that storms back, scores first in overtime. Oshkosh scores, great throw to Mitchell Garand in the end zone. He's uh, goes up over 
two central defenders, turns his body, catches it, comes down inbounds. Great touchdown catch. And then Oshkosh does what Central did a couple weeks ago, decides let's not play a three-overtime game like Chapman and Linfield would do later in the day. Let's get this thing over with. It's the whole entire season, and the I don't want to say the legacy of your program, but certainly however you remember 2019, you put it on one two-point play, and be honest, Kobe Burkheimer had a, had a guy in the end zone, looked like the throw was okay, and, and just didn't make the catch. But it's real. It's a real tough call. It's great when it goes your way, right? You, yeah. you look at how Central won uh, a couple of weeks ago with the two-point conversion, beat Warburg 57-56. They're not playing today if they don't get that two-point conversion. And now with, with this conversion, have you ever seen a team whose season has been more affected by two-point conversion attempts than this particular group of Central Dutch? Canucks scored the go-ahead touchdown in overtime. Here is his reaction about the game tying touchdown at the end of regulation. Yeah, that's it's it's awesome. Not many get people get to experience something like that, and uh, and I, all I saw was uh, Blaine rolling out, and I just put my hand up. I'm no, I'm gonna make, get made fun of him filling for that, but I put my hand up and then uh, and then uh, made eye contact with Blaine, and I knew that it was coming to me, and I just had to make a play on the ball, and luckily I did. We've talked a little bit about the uh, Chapman-Linfield game, Chapman winning and advancing in three overtimes, moving on to host St. John's on Saturday. And uh, St. John's uh, you know, against Aurora. St. John's hadn't given up 47 points in who knows how long, probably since uh, the 63-7 to loss to St. Thomas uh, some years ago. But they... Uh, you know, you mentioned, Keith, uh, down uh, multiple scores at multiple occasions. They were down 28-14 in the first half. They were down 47-38 with 8.26 to go in the game before those two drives you talked about in your game balls. And uh, that is a, uh, you know, again, Erdman with a fantastic day. But just to talk a little bit about uh, Gavin Zimbelman's numbers, he was 39-58 of 58 passing for 432 yards, six TDs, Two interceptions. He ran for a touchdown in 59 yards as well. Colton, Colton Jewell and Jacoby Maxwell, each with over 100 yards receiving. It's just a really uh, interesting season for Aurora. We kind of saw right out of the gate, right, that uh, you know uh, Aurora announced its presence with a 50-40 to 40 win against St. Norbert in Week 1. And while that doesn't necessarily, that game alone doesn't necessarily say you're going to score 47 points on St. John's and have a shot to win the game, uh, it, it obviously was a sign that we needed to pay attention to Aurora. And I, I felt like we did a good job of that, actually. Yeah, I, I thought we could tell from our offseason conversation with Don Beebe. Don Beebe! Don Beebe caught him from behind! And then the first couple of games, even the, the loss to Hope, which turned out to be a playoff team, it was a 34-32 game. There weren't going to be too many teams that were going to to keep Aurora off the board. And St. John's had been good defensively all season. Thought maybe a stronger team from a stronger conference, maybe they shut them down. It was very evident from the beginning that it wasn't going to happen. I think uh, St. John's walked away from this one with a lot of respect for the Aurora program. And I think we've got to take note now going forward, not just as top 25 voters at the end of this season, but as we start next season. Maybe um, Aurora is like the new Franklin, which is a, a, a team from a small conference that will be heavily driven by such good offense and so, a somewhat dynamic personality as coach where they'll always be able to recruit. 
and uh, maybe there'll be a small conference team that is going to be dangerous in for postseasons to come. Certainly, we're dangerous on Saturday. Now we all know the name Gavin Zimbelman if we didn't before, and uh, and and you know we take note of Aurora football very nearly pulled off one of the the epic all-time first-round upsets. I know St. John's few weeks removed from being in the top five in the country, and uh, certainly going into next week, I don't I don't think we're thinking of them as a national championship contender the way we were after the St. Thomas win, but. This is just a, 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 a it would have been for Aurora. I can't think of a, of a first round upset that would have been more monumental. Even going back to, to North Carolina Wesley and beating one seed Washington Jefferson back in 2004. At that time, WNJ was uh, was a good program, a really good program. Um, but I don't think it would have been what this upset would have been had Aurora been able to hang on to that nine point lead in the last eight and a half minutes. Aurora's next game will be next September against St. John's. They start off with each other in non-conference play to start off the 2020 season. Coming up to the top right bracket, Salisbury all over SUNY Maritime uh, game. This Keith, uh, Keith, this game was what we thought it was. It was 42 nothing uh, by the time the first quarter was over. It was 21 nothing in the first nine minutes. The first six minutes, excuse me. Yeah, it's about what you would think it was going to be. It was worse than we thought it was going to be. Uh, there was a point in this game where Salisbury had run 26 plays and had 19 first downs. They were at 63 by the half. And, you know, Salisbury's not uh, not feeding one guy. You, you might hurt your scrolling thumb trying to figure out how many guys got uh, got touches <laughs> on Saturday for, for Salisbury. There's only 58 on, on the roster, so it was some number fewer than 58, but it was certainly – uh, more than a couple of guys. Uh, nobody got more than nine. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven players ran for touchdowns. And it was just a, a mismatch from the start. Certainly didn't reflect well on, on you know, the, the AQ system, having not just a five and five team in there, but a five and five team from a decimated conference whose champion or whose team that finished in first place was ineligible for the playoffs. So it, it pushed... Um, SUNY Maritime into the field. Uh, it's not SUNY Maritime's first uh, playoff appearance or first bad playoff loss. It's also not the first time a five and five team has made the postseason. St. Lawrence did it did it a few years back and had to go to Mount Union in round one and uh, did not end similarly well for Salisbury. I don't know how great you feel after a game like this. I mean, it's certainly fun to win big and and show your program's dominance, but it doesn't help them get ready for union all that much and uh union itself uh just squeaked past case western reserve so maybe that's a teeny bit of solace well let's talk about that union game it's a game in which they were down at the half to case western reserve by the score of 21 to 3 and i was thinking you know i think probably like a lot of people who pay close attention to division three football and kind of like you were mentioning earlier you know thinking about that illinois wesleyan game in which Case went to IWU as a road underdog and ended up winning that game and you know winning it going away. This was a situation in which it was kind of the opposite. Uh, you know, first off, uh, Drew Saxon had an amazing first half for Case Western. He, he only had uh, two incomplete passes, uh, and then he uh, he got hurt uh, early on. In the third quarter, he uh, came out for a play. Uh, his backup fumbled. Union uh, takes a two-play drive to go 31 yards, and uh, 
you know, uh, Will Bellamy finally gets his uh, first touchdown pass of the afternoon, hits Griffin Beal, and then, uh, you know, they uh, they go three and out. Saxton does come back into the game. Uh, Case goes three and out. They punt to pin Union deep back on its four-yard line, and uh, Union goes on a 12-play, 96-yard drive. Bellamy hits Beal again for a touchdown that makes it 21-16. to 16. Next drive, Case stalls out at the Union 19-yard line. They have a field goal blocked. Union comes back and a nine-play, 80-yard drive and a two-point conversion. Passes both good by Will Bellamy, 24-21. Case uh, fails on two consecutive fourth downs, and Union comes away with that victory, the 24-21 score. And Case Western Reserve nearly pulls the upset of a 10-0 team. And uh, for Union now, that goes down in in their storybook season, eleven and zero now, and uh, they'll they'll have a, a playoff comeback to be proud of. I think Case Western Reserve represented itself in its conference, the the pack, pretty well in this one. But I, I, you're looking at now a matchup of two unbeaten teams in uh, in in round two, and I don't think we have that anywhere else in in the field. Uh, at this point, so it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty um, exciting for for Union and Salisbury, and I think that'll be one of the better games in this next round. But there are a couple of teams, Union being one of them, St. John's being another, uh, Central who, who who got by. Everybody, nobody's going to apologize for a win. Everybody's happy to move on. But you look at now, you're playing a team that won eighty three zero. I don't know how you go into this one being super confident. You just like hey. Fresh week, slate's clean, and uh, let's uh, let's let's uh, give it our best shot. Other side of this quadrant uh, starts with Muhlenberg at MIT. Muhlenberg really slow start in this game. Uh, you know, you expect them to maybe not quite do what Salisbury did to SUNY Maritime, but I might have expected them to do what Wheaton did to Martin Luther. And instead, uh, Muhlenberg ends up punting on five of its first seven possessions before finally kind of getting things together with a. Uh, a two-minute drill to score with 17 seconds left in the first half to go up 21-0, and then they come back out in their first possession of the third quarter and go another two-minute drive to go up 28-0, and then a 31-second drive after a, a quick change to go up 35, and you know after that it was kind of academic. It 38-0 just looks a little unusual, but the defense was great for Muhlenberg once again. Another instance in which a team was held under 100 yards of total offense. In this case, it was just 95 yards for MIT. Yeah, and, and some of that's a mismatch. I mean, Muhlenberg is a really good team. Uh, a centennial uh, MIT matchup would, would seem to be a little more even than this one was, but this is perhaps one of the better, stronger uh, centennial teams. That uh, that we've seen in in even with all the great Johns Hopkins teams of the past 10, 15 years, this one's right up there. Thought the big important takeaway, uh, even when the uh, Muhlenberg offense wasn't doing, uh, wasn't having its way with MIT. Michael Nakowski finishes the game with no interceptions, no turnovers, and and that's always big. You know, if you're the better, stronger team, even if it takes a little while to get going, you know, as long as you. Uh, don't give the uh, the other team any freebies. You'll eventually uh, you're, you'll start clicking. So I thought this may was may have been the least interesting game of uh, of round one. Muhlenberg moves on fairly easily, and they're going to play a much more interesting game next week against Brockport. I would suspect. And Brockport advances uh, in interesting fashion as well uh, in the way that they defeated Western New England by the score 
of 33 to 28. You know, down early and, uh, you know, down 14-6 early on. Uh, they come back to score a touchdown, miss on the two-point conversion. They go to the half down 14-12. And then uh, Brockport, you know, finally puts a little bit of offense together. They get a 25-yard drive to uh, get on top and then a, a quick 65-yard drive with Jalay Code with a 53-yard touchdown run to go up 26-14. And then they kind of just hold Western New England at, at arm's length. The, 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 the Golden Bears score early in the fourth to cut it to five. Brockport comes right back on the next drive and they milk a bunch of clock off. 5-12 on the clock, 75 yards to go up 33-21. Western New England comes back with another quick touchdown uh, but uh, able to cover the onside kick and run out the clock. Brockport in this game held onto the ball for 41 minutes and 36 seconds and able to come away with that 33-28 to victory. Obviously a great second half for Brockport. And we talk a lot about halftime adjustments and what kind of inspirational speech a coach might have given his team at halftime. Here's what Jason Mangoni said he said to his team at the break. I'm not a big locker room guy in terms of speeches and whatnot. So really it's more or less bring them up, talk for 20 seconds, and let's go. I'm not, I'm not a rah-rah guy before the game, and I'm certainly not going to be a rah-rah guy at halftime. Probably a little more rah-rah on the sideline. Um, that's kind of my MO. But no, this, these guys, you know, when you got West and obviously Jolly and our other seniors, even though we're a small number, they've been here, you know, and, you know, you look back in 17, the Final Four, and, you know, I think West had three sacks, forced fumble, fumble recoveries. He's been a guy that can ball from, from day one. So when you have talent, you don't have to do too many speeches. Well, Brockport whole season has been rallying from behind you know i feel like i mentioned at every podcast but they lost the opener uh 33-7 reeled off eight consecutive wins then they lose in week 11 fall behind in their playoff game and the season feels like it's going to end with a whimper instead ends with a memorable one and now get a chance to go to muhlenberg and play one of the best teams in the country how do you hold on to the ball for 41 plus minutes well you go three of 17 on third down but then go six of six on fourth downs. I don't know if I've ever seen a team uh, attempt six fourth downs and uh, and get all of them. Pretty huge day for, for Brockport. And it was one of those games, you know, since the scoring, uh, you mentioned that halftime score of 14-12 and Brockport only adds the one touchdown in the third quarter. It was hanging around for a long time. The game was at Western New England. Brockport was the road team. And so there was a chance, I think, for what we would consider at least, again, going by name recognition, you, you think that would be an upset even though Western New England is the home team. Brockport pulls it out, and uh, now you get to see Brockport-Muhlenberg next week. And this Brockport team, I think, super resilient. And you're right, you probably don't need a whole lot of uh, lot of speeches when you've done the comeback thing before, as they did at Cortland, and the whole season has been one big comeback. Bottom right-hand bracket, we start with Mount Union, 65-14, over Hanover, they go up 21 nothing in the first uh, just under 12 minutes of the game. At that point, uh, D'Angelo Fulford has already hit Derek Harvey for two of the eventual three touchdown catches he would have on the afternoon. Josh Petroselli with three touchdowns on the ground. Another great defensive performance. Another time in which the, uh, t- uh, the opposing team is held under 100 yards, just 80 yards of total offense for Hanover, minus 11 on the ground. Hey, we haven't been talking about Mountain Union all season, and we're not going to start now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, this was 
they're they're they often the purple raiders often get such a because they're so good they get an eight seed sent to them in a, in a lot of these first rounds and their first round games aren't all that entertaining you know i think they played one interesting one against wnl a few years ago but a lot of you know, had 60 to 0 last year you know they dismantle some other really good 9 and 1 8 and 2 7 and 3 team every year so this one is a, i guess a tune up for their first really big game of the season and i know john carroll is the big game locally but they they handled their business pretty well uh, against uh against the blue streaks 37-14 midseason Mountain Union, strangely enough, doesn't have to get up for games uh, all that often during the season. And I know part of the reason they are so good is because they start every week saying, we got to respect our opponent. These guys could beat us if we don't play well. Even if that's not actually true, they've managed to convince their uh, their players of this fact. And I think they're now going to face somebody next week that could actually beat them if they don't play well. And uh, they're, they're going to be focused from the moment they start uh, looking at looking ahead at tape and, and practicing this week, I think you're going to get something that Mountain Union fans actually appreciate, which is a tight playoff game a little earlier in the playoffs than they're used to having it. Yeah, I would have to assume, Keith, at the moment you get on uh, game tape and you see Ethan Greenfield with his number eight jersey for North Central running for uh, 301 yards on 29 carries against Wabash, you've got to uh, you've got to obviously stand up and uh, and uh, you know pay some attention. Uh, Brock Rudder, the guy who we talk about all season, uh, is uh, kind of a secondary note in terms of the offense for the uh, for the Cardinals on Saturday in that 51 to 15 win 17 to 19 passing for 230 yards Andrew Kaminsky catching nine passes for 163 yards there a game in which Wabash did not go away early and then uh, North Central rattles off the final 23 points to uh, put the game away but uh, you know we've obviously you know I've seen Ethan Greenfield we've seen his stats his photo has been on the front page of d3football.com previously but uh, not to the tune of 301 yards that's really impressive and this one, actually, aside from the Salisbury game, may be the most dominating uh, day in the field because uh, you had North Central gaining 9.3 yards per play, uh, 588 yards of total offense. You, t- you talked about the huge day for Ethan Greenfield, but um, you know the passing game was plenty efficient, 17 of 19 completions, and really everything North Central did went well, and it's great for them to get this one this feather in the cap for them, and I think the almost the exact same feeling we just described for Mountain Union. North Central's been a, a top-10 team all season, lost only to Wheaton, and even when they lost to Wheaton, they didn't drop too far in the pole, rightfully so. North Central gets a get-up for a big game and uh, has an opportunity to turn this season into from a typical North Central season where you know they pretty have a pretty nice year, maybe get into the postseason, maybe win a game or two, They've got a chance to make this the North Central season, the one they remember forever. All they got to do is uh, go to Alliance round two and, and beat the, uh, the the most storied program in D3 history. But I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder, and Gilda to frame for it. I'm swamped. Uh, Wesley against Framingham State. Wesley starts it off with a 84-yard kickoff return. I think they were the first team to score in the Division Three playoffs this season. Marcellus Pack takes it back 84 yards, but the story that, uh, you know, first of all, people were talking about from Wesley before the game even started was this was the time that uh, freshman quarterback Drew Fry was going to get his first start 
in a Wolverines uniform. And, uh, you know, obviously it's against Framingham State, who's an 8-2 team coming in as a number 7 seed. But kid goes 24 of 28, throws five touchdowns, throws for 345 yards, and a, a pretty good way to, uh, to announce your arrival. Uh, the guy who has been talked about a lot, he's a son of a, a, a guy who was a, a big-time player at the University of Delaware. I think he was a Delaware High School State Player of the Year. And uh, that's why people have known who this guy is before he comes in. Well, yeah, and Delaware is a, a small state. When somebody's known within the state, the, the high school community is, is pretty tight. And, uh, you know, basically, Wesley and, and Dell State are your other options besides, uh, besides UD. So I think the, the thing that was exciting for Wesley fans, because they, they struggled with the New England team, earlier in the season and they beat Endicott 20 to 17. And so you're looking at Framingham state coming in and thinking, uh, you know, this one could go either way. This could be a typical Wesley blowout, or this could be a game more typical of a lot of their games this season where they, uh, they have to find a way to win at the end. No doubt. After the first quarter, uh, you mentioned packs kickoff return in the first 11 seconds. Uh, Wesley's on the board again before, uh, before the 11 minute mark with drew Fry's first touchdown pass, third, eight yarder to Ruhan Peel, Two more touchdown passes before the end of the first quarter for Drew Fry, and they're up 27-7 going into the second, and then there's a 92-yard interception return. Another touchdown pass from Drew Fry. The route is on, and um, it turns out to be kind of a cakewalk for Wesley. They should be happy, I guess, to uh, to get an easy-ish win in their, uh, their rearview mirror because they got Del Val coming back. Uh, this week and for that rematch. And I think uh, this one next week won't be nearly as easy. Delaware Valley comes back as uh, was previously mentioned. They were down 19, 10, uh, you know, pretty late in the third quarter. They come back and uh, win that game 30 to 22. Keith, you were there. I shouldn't talk about it. You should. You're right. Uh, I was there. Gordon Mann and I did the broadcast and Gordon knew uh, Delaware Valley pretty extensively. I'd seen Bridgewater play a couple weeks prior against Randolph-Macon. And the the thing that stood out about Bridgewater is they moved the ball really well without ever really trying to push it too far down the field. I mean, their whole entire passing game is uh, short and intermediate, but it worked. And it, and it worked pretty well early in the game. Bridgewater had an opportunity late in the, in the first half. Basically, it's a back-and-forth game. Both offenses driving. Uh, Bridgewater, Delaware Valley gets the first kick. Goes all the way down, scores, puts together a nice drive, almost all passing. Bridgewater takes a kickoff back to the house. And so by the time Wesley had had its uh, 7-0 lead, you know, we were we were too far behind. We had a 7-7 game, and there was uh, scoring happening all over the country all of a sudden. Um, Jared Denham ends up having another huge kick return in the third quarter for Bridgewater as well. Right before the half, Bridgewater has a chance to – they're up 13-7. They have a chance to go up uh, – even bigger, they miss a, a field goal that would have put them up 16-7 going in, and that was the first real stop for DelVal's defense. They they hadn't they just hadn't slowed Bridgewater down to that point. And defensively, I think after that they built on it, play a lot better in the second half. Got off the field a couple times in the third quarter. Jared Denham has a after DelVal scores, Denham has another huge kick return. This one was for 75 yards. Would have been a touchdown if the kicker. Doesn't uh, get over, push him out of bounds. And that play, strangely enough, a, a kicker who probably probably was told to, to kick the ball out of bounds and kicked it to the guy who had already taken one to the house. That play, make it, making sure that wasn't a touchdown, 
Defense comes on the field for DelVal, holds uh, Bridgewater to a field goal attempt at that point. And from that point on, I think DelVal survives. They were able, again, they all day they're moving the ball. The next drive, they started putting together a little bit of run game. And, and they just, they had a very diverse, varied look where, uh, you know, they're using jet sweeps and read option plays and, and uh, lining up basically a lot of empty backfield, but still running the ball because they're just using the wing back or the, the slot guy as a motion man and um, giving him carry. So uh, having these looks where you think it's definitely pass and that ends up being a run play. Uh, Del Val is able to move the ball a couple times down the field. And then the real, I mean, the game lived up to its billing. It was a great game. It was back and forth. Uh, Del Val goes ahead 23-19. And then this was sort of, sort of disappointing at this point. Four minutes left, Bridgewater gets to kick off. And first down, Jay Scroggins, the star quarterback for Bridgewater, is rolling to his right. Points, as in, like, I need, I need you, receiver, to, you know, just break. Cause I'm running, and uh, as he as he put his hand back to the ball, I don't know if he just dropped it, but pops off his knee. Uh, he knocks it out of his own hand. Whatever it was, uh, ball bounces right to Vincent DeLeo, the the uh, linebacker for Del Valle takes it to a touchdown. And so then you have instead of this epic or chance for an epic drive for Bridgewater, ends up being a, a 11 point lead for Del Valle. And uh, even though Bridgewater goes down and kicks a field goal and attempts an onside kick, it, it was sort of over from that point. So ended up being a, a pretty great first round game as we all expected. But um, but but the finish where we could where we saw great finishes across the country at Chapman Central and uh, St. John's didn't get the 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 epic finish that we could have if uh, if Scroggins doesn't make his one bad mistake of the day at, at the worst possible time. Duke Greco talks about uh, switching to the running game in the second half. I think it was probably my fault in the first half not to run the ball more, uh, the way uh, the way they were playing us. So we talked about the halftime, came out, gave it to the other line a little bit, to our running backs, and, and let, them, let them go. And I thought they did a great job of, of taking advantage of their opportunities. When you say the way they were playing us, you mean they were sort of backing off into the zones? Just playing us too high coverage. Yeah. And I think uh, personally, I'm trying to force the ball down the field a little bit. So just trying to take a deep breath and relax and let the game come to, come to the offense. Try to get them one eye in the second half. Just feel honored to be part of this game. It was just such a great football game on both sides. I mean, we go down the first drive and they come back and with the, like compliments to them, return the kick, and it just seemed back and forth the entire game. So I was glad when the, when the clock went, you know, we were on the, the other end. Going by game by game by game takes up some time. We'll dispense with a bunch of the categories, but we're going to send it over to Keith for stat of the week. Yeah, and if you were paying attention to Twitter on Saturday night, you may have seen some of these. But if uh, you're not a Twitter person and you join us on the podcast, bunch of cool stats from round one. The Pool C teams went four and one in round one with no game decided by fewer than 25 points. The margins were 38, 37, 36, 25, and Redlands lost to the defending national champion, Mary Harden Baylor. So if you're a fan, of uh, of Susquehanna, John Carroll, the, the two teams that didn't get in in Pool C, the teams that did get in ahead of them uh, held their own and uh, did probably what you would expect them to do. And uh, you know, I don't think uh, Susky or or John Carroll was was uh, going to Mary Harden Baylor and doing a whole lot better than Redlands did. Home teams were twelve and four, but very nearly were eight and eight. As Central and Chapman needed overtime to win, Union and St. John's needed those go ahead scores in the final three minutes. Imagine that if eight road teams had won in round one. 
Teams ranked higher or receiving more votes in the D3Football.com poll were 14-2 and two in round one. Central and Huntington were the two teams that pulled upsets. Central ranked 24th, UW Oshkosh ranked 18th. Huntington was unranked and beat number 23, Barry. Of the 16 teams that lost on Saturday, only five were even ranked. So that means 14 teams of the top 25, including the entire top 10, remain in the field. Brockport and Huntington are the two unranked teams that stay alive. And one last stat for you. Teams that lost in week 11 went 2-2. Two and two. Brockport and Whitewater both won. Case Western Reserve almost won. Wabash was the uh, the one team that lost in week 11 and was not competitive in week 12, a.k.a. round one of the playoffs. Yeah, and Wabash, even if they had uh, won the Monon Bell game in week 11, I don't think they would have been seated too much differently. So uh, I'm not sure that it would have mattered a whole heck of a lot. Do you have anything else for me? I did want to put you on the spot, and I know that's a game we usually play in uh, later in the week in the podcast, but this is fun. I want you to answer this, all right? I know we'll deal with this all more in depth in Friday's podcast, but I'd like for you to rank for me in ascending order from least to most exciting the second round games next week. I'll read them off really quickly. You tell me the most meh and the most jaw-dropping or the game you're anticipating most here next week's matchups uh union at salisbury that's two undefeated teams brockport at muhlenberg north central at mountain union delaware valley at wesley st john's at chapman central at wheaton warburg at whitewater huntington at mary harden baylor i mean that looks like a pretty amazing slate of second round games I think maybe, uh, well, this is up to you, right? You tell me which ones and how many look good to you. Uh, and, and like again, start with uh, with the least exciting. Mary Harden-Baylor-Huntington, I think, has to be that one that's the, the least exciting. Mary Harden-Baylor should win that one going away. Um, I think that the Muhlenberg-Brockport game I would probably put next, uh, it's probably going to be fairly low scoring. I don't think Brockport is going to be able to muster a whole lot of offense against Muhlenberg and um, I think Muhlenberg should win that game handily based on that. Uh, third least exciting, probably Wheaton and Central. Uh, I think Wheaton probably uh, is a, a, a good chance to contain uh, Blaine Hawkins and the Central offense with those guys that they have up front. Salisbury and Union would probably be next. Um, just because I think that Salisbury is going to is going to have a, a good handle on Union. I know that Union plays Springfield, but uh, that's that you know seeing that triple option offense is not the same as seeing what Salisbury does on offense. So those are the four least interesting, least exciting ones, I guess. Uh, Whitewater and Wartburg, I would probably put then as fourth or fifth from the bottom, fourth from the top, because now these are the better games. Um, Wesley and Delaware Valley probably third. I don't ex- I, obviously it's not going to go to four overtimes again, right? Can't possibly go to four overtimes again. Please don't go to four overtimes again. Um, Chapman and St. John's, probably the second most exciting game. And then, uh, or intriguing. Was it intriguing or exciting? I said exciting, but intriguing is probably a fine way to look at it. Um, and then I would have uh, Mountain Union and North Central at the top, just because that game has a lot of potential to be super interesting. A couple of great quarterbacks. Interesting to see how uh, Brock Rudder does against that uh, vaunted Mountain Union defense. And, you know, all sorts of things. And, um you know, hopefully not just justifying the uh, the expense I put into a, a plane ticket to make it to that game. And look, I, I think you could ask someone else who knows what they're talking about 
to order these games and get a completely different order. I think except for Huntington at UMHB, which is I don't expect to be uh, all that competitive. I think any of the rest of these games not only could be competitive, but you got some story, some backstory. One of the great comebacks in Whitewater history is a is a down three scores at Wartburg, or maybe they're down two scores and they and Whitewater scores three times to come back and win that one, go to another stag bowl. But that was probably Wartburg's best team, or at least best team in recent memory. This one gets a chance to try to avenge that loss against a UW Whitewater that's not that mighty. And so probably uh, probably beatable. I think you know you know um, the Wesley Delaware Valley rematch will be great. Chapman and St. John's probably not one that we would have uh, been super excited about five weeks ago. Now you're looking at a team coming off scoring 68 and another team coming off scoring uh, 51. Both of those teams defensively gave up 47 and 65. So you imagine uh, could have another shootout in your hands. I just think they're a bunch of great looking games. Next week, we'll be around on Friday to preview them. I just wanted to see what your early thoughts were. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now is the time in the podcast where we go to Twitter. Yeah, we'll take a Twitter question before we step out the door here. This comes from Jam Todd Twit. We know of him to be a St. Thomas fan asking, has there been any talk about extending the Bulls to other parts of the country, Midwest? I know you mentioned it, but I don't see the downside of an extra game if it's allowed in NCAA rules. Would have loved to see uh, St. Thomas football playing somebody today. Yeah, and we have talked about this in the past, and uh, normally I wouldn't go back and retread this uh you know, this well-trodden ground, but uh, I did have a conversation today with a football coach whose team was not playing out of the Midwest, who was asking kind of those similar things. How does the ECAC work? How do those things get put together? Um, My recommendation to this guy was, you know, not to try to replicate the ECAC because there's a whole lot of extra stuff around that, but there's nothing to say that the uh, that here in the Midwest, you couldn't have the exact same sort of thing that they have between the Mac and the Centennial, where three teams from each of those conferences meet for a bowl game at the end of the season. The ones who don't make the playoffs, uh, the four Northeast conference or the four New England conferences all have something like that as well. And of course, you know, that's how the a lot of the Division One bowls work, right? It's uh, it's the seventh place team out of the big 10 against the third place team from the Mac or something like that. There's nothing to say that, you know, the, the runner up in the Midwest conference couldn't play like the third place team in the ARC or the, you know, the top teams from the MIAC and, and WIAC couldn't play each other every year in week 12. In fact, I would really love to see that happen. And I think all it takes, all it takes, you know, what it takes to get started is a conversation between the two conferences. Somebody's got to somebody's got to have that conversation. and I hope that they do. Yeah, absolutely. And that really is where it starts. The conference commissioners get together and, and, and put the thing together. I think the New York New York Bowl is another one uh, that that yep. is just a, a matchup of Empire eight and Liberty League teams that don't get in and don't play elsewhere. So it can be done. And uh, you just got to get your two conference is the two conferences on board. We've seen um these proliferate really in the past few years. So, so I think there is a movement afoot to get teams that extra opportunity to play because as we've learned, or as we've been reminded several times over the past few weeks, just not that many teams or just that many, not that many opportunities for non conference champions. I hadn't heard. Is that a thing? Did we talk about that? Did that come up? It did come up. Pat. (laughs) All right, and that was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Number 262, season 13, episode 24, released 
on November 25th of 2019. Thanks for listening and uh, keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts, you know, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere else that you get podcasts because that will help uh, other football fans find it. You can leave comments for us about a specific episode on the blog page as well. And we hope you have a happy Thanksgiving as well. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. And uh, I just love the fact that it's food and family and you don't have to give gifts. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Other audio in this podcast provided by Keith McMillan and by Greg Thomas. And then also from uh, the uh, post-game news conferences at a various amount of sites. Also highlights from Central and Chapman. Thanks for all of that stuff being on the internet. It makes this so much more fun. Our theme music and some of the other music we use in this podcast is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Also, you can find him on Spotify. And uh, thanks, of course, to everybody who helped create this show. And thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but, uh, you know, we've, we've had these conversations and I want to focus on the 32 teams we're playing. Seems fair. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time. <laughs>